Okay, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13. And we're going to tackle the whole chapter. And the content of this chapter is, is unique in that most of the stuff that's brought up in this chapter is, are things that we've already expounded on and covered um, as it relates to the historical context of Nehemiah and also uh, from the biblical context in terms of what they mean. Things such as uh, the law of God, um, the temple, maintaining the house of God, keeping the Sabbath, um, mixed marriages and things like that. And so when you think back to the, our study in Nehemiah, this is the final chapter in our study, you remember we spent a significant amount of time on the covenant treaty that was made by the people of God, um, the Levites specifically, and they made very uh, s- several promises that they were going to keep because they had heard the law, they had known that their fathers had sinned, that they have went astray from following God. And so once they heard the law and they said, we are going to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps here. We are going to make a, a covenant with God and we are going to keep this covenant and we are going to maintain the house of God. And so chapter 13 is really um, a chapter that could be very much well paralleled with Malachi. So if you ever want to read additional, because today's our last day in Nehemiah, Read the book of Malachi. It's only four chapters, but it really expounds completely on Nehemiah 13. Because this is the time when Nehemiah had left Jerusalem. So Nehemiah was in Jerusalem for approximately, I would say, 12 years. And he the, the book, uh, the chapters uh, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12 is really only about a year. And so from that chapter 12 to chapter 13, we jump about 12 years. And Nehemiah had went back to the king. And uh, he went back to the king in Susa for a short amount of time and then came back to Jerusalem. And what he found when he came back in Jerusalem is that everything pretty much went to pot. Everybody backslid. Nobody did what they were supposed to do in terms of the covenant. And chapter 13 is about how Nehemiah reacted to that. So I don't have the entire chapter 13 text projected today because I I just thought it would be a little bit redundant to go through it. Um, So I'm going to piece through it and inch through it as we go through the sermon. So with that said, if you would like a Bible, you don't have to have a Bible to follow along. I'm going to read scriptures. But if you would like a Bible to go through this, you can just put up your hand. And Noah will bring you a Bible from the back. So just put up your hand and you can keep it up and Noah will bring you a Bible. I'm going to start on chapter 13, verse 1, which says, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there were found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter in to the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water when they came out of Egypt, that is, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, this is a really confusing intro into chapter 13, because it says on that day, 
And as we read in chapter 12, we see a lot of on that day and on that day and on that day. But really, uh, reading of the, law, uh, the, the reading of the law was something that took place regularly in Israel. It took place on holy days, on festivals, on Sabbaths, and things like that. And this was a memoir of Nehemiah. And when Ezra put it together, he took pieces out of this memoir to show and to illustrate certain points that he wanted to communicate in the history of the Jewish people. And also to those like us that read it afterwards. So although this seems like it was part of chapter 12, it's really 12 years later. And if you would like more uh, explanation on that, feel free to see me and I could go in a little bit more from that. So looking at this, I'd like to take today and look at Nehemiah in chapter 13 and also Nehemiah as a whole as we leave him. Um, Regrettably, because I really enjoyed this book and I really enjoyed what an inspiration Uh, This book was to me personally. I hope it was to you. But I don't know about you, but did you ever look back over your life over a period of time and see how the Lord has worked? Maybe you, you look back a year from now to where you are today or five years from, from, from before and, and where you are today. Maybe you're shocked. How did I get here? I never thought in a million years that five years ago I'd be sitting in a church in Freehold or five years ago I would be living in the situation I'm living in now. Maybe it's a, a bad recollection or maybe it's a good recollection. Either way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's ultimately going to turn out to be exactly what God wanted and that would make it good. What about 12 years ago? Like Nehemiah was this 12-year gap. I know for me, 12 years ago, I would have never thought I'd be here today. My life was going in a different direction in ministry and in the Lord. And if you had told me 12 years ago that I would be pastoring a church in Freehold, maybe in India, I may believe you, uh, or may say, yeah, that's great. That's where God would want me. But being in Freehold, 15 minutes from my home, um, would be a hard thing for me to believe. I would just say, that would be crazy. It'd be amazing. I, I, how am I going to get there? I'm going all the way over here, and yet I'm all the way over there. And so it's ultimately God's sovereign hand. And this is how Nehemiah must have felt. He must have been blown away. <clears throat> I mean, the man was really in one of the most prestigious groups in all of Persia. He worked for the king. He was in the king's quarters. He was ultimately uh, rotated in very frequently as a cupbearer. That meant that he got to taste the the wine of the king before he would drink it. It was a symbolic act of of putting your life before the king. I'm going to taste it, so if there's any poison in it, I will die and not the king. He got to know the king very well. He got to know the king's court, the king's people, the king's servants. He was living the life. He was probably being pampered. But he had a heart for God. He knew his people were still in captivity. And I can imagine that the last thing that he would ever think that day that he walked into the king's quarters is that in six to 12 months from that time, he would have went in and turned Jerusalem upside down and right side up. He would have never believed that he was going to be the governor, the civil leader, 
the motivational leader, the influencer, to be able to complete the walls to protect the city of God. But more importantly, to reestablish the nation of Israel, or at least plant that seed. This was a pivot point in the history of Israel. This was prophecy in action. God had said he would return. God said he would do something big. He would bring his people back to the land. Well, I wonder how that's going to all play out. Well, guess what, Nehemiah? It's going to be you. You're going to be the linchpin. You're going to be the one to make that. You're going to be the catalyst to get this going, and you are going to maintain it. What an amazing testimony to think about Nehemiah. I can't help but, but think, it does, it does it not beg the question, is, does God still work this way? Does God still seek people as he did with Nehemiah? People that are just the average person to take and pull out and use in a powerful way. Seemingly maybe a little small step, but ultimately in a powerful way for the building of the kingdom of God. Not to just build the walls of Jerusalem like Nehemiah did. That was some task. But something much bigger. Those of us that are used by God, that are Christians, that are being used by God, we're building towards the ultimate new creation. When all things are going to be made new. Everything that we do for Christ is a block in that wall that will never come down. But does God still look? I believe he does. Do his eyes still move to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those whose hearts are strong towards him? Is he still looking today? Yes. His word is eternal. And and this God that we serve, the God of the universe, doesn't change. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need workers. He could do it all himself. He could create any sort of existence and creation he wants. But he chooses to create the little and tiny and small to confound the wise. He chooses to take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's you and me. That's humanity. Sinning, sinners, people that don't deserve God. Yet he comes and he uses us to build the most magnificent kingdom in all the ages, in all the ages to come. So what does it require? How do we do this? How do we get involved in this plan? Beyond just saying, I am a Christian, I am following the Lord, and I wholeheartedly want to be used by God. I'm going to give you that. You want to be used by God. You you want to be a Nehemiah. Well, it requires one Tiny little item, which Nehemiah throughout the whole entire book illustrated very well. And that is a step of faith. God has designed it so that big changes in his plan of restoration come from little steps of faith on the part of his people. Big changes in God's plan come from little steps of faith from his people, from you and from I. And every little step of faith moves this plan forward. Now, Nehemiah took many steps of faith 
But it all began with that one little step. Do you remember in chapter 1, after he heard of what was going on in Jerusalem? He said in chapter 1, verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I was what? Fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He wasn't, I got this. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a plan together. We're going to go rebuild these walls. We're going to do this. Who do I got with me? Come on. No, he just was a broken man. Heartbroken, humbled, fell down before the Lord. And that right there, my friend, is the step of faith that God was looking for. That's when it all began. God then guided him in his calling, provided him for him in ways that Nehemiah would have never thought possible. Nehemiah became a stronger man of faith as we read on through the, uh, his story, knowing that God could provide for even the rebuilding and the reinstatement of the holy city. So as we finish this book today, we're going to see what we can take not only from chapter 13, but also from Nehemiah's journey as a whole. Because I believe as Christians, we must model Nehemiah's example. Not only his example of leadership, not only his example of zeal, but most important, his example of perseverance in faith. Perseverance in stepping out in faith for God. Now, as I said, chapter 13 covers a lot of what we already discussed throughout the book, especially the last few chapters. And so, but I do want to show you that even in chapter 13, after he went back to the king to check in, I'm sure he told the king everything that would, had had happened and he went and just went there back to Susa for a short time and then came back to Jerusalem to find out things had been going sour. And so after his visit, he saw that these sins that were promised, as I mentioned in the covenant, to what? Not neglect the house of God, to keep the Sabbath, to maintain the tithes, to provide for the Levites, to not intermarry, they were all, they all went to pot. They basically got back into all their old habits again. They neglected the house of God. They, they profaned the Sabbath. We're going to see this. They didn't maintain the tithes. They didn't provide for the Levites. And they began to intermarry again. Now, when you have a goal, when you have a vision from God, and I know this is with myself too, and usually this is like from a business mindset. It's like, let's test market, and if it doesn't work, then we bail and we go on to a different product or a different niche. But that's not how it works with God. Oftentimes, our test marketing with God will fail because God wants to see how faithful we really are to that calling that he's put on to our life. The best illustration I could see is in marriage. People get married and then they say, well, it's not really working out. This was, must have been a mistake, so I'm going to bail out now. No, this is the very thing that God wants to use to make you more like Christ, is that chemistry lab of marriage. Marriage is a commitment. That's why you must be very careful before you make that commitment. Because once you do, God is going to say to you, now you follow through no matter what. Now, I know there are different nuances to that. We're not getting into 
all those things. If you've been divorced, God has forgiven you. I'm not going there now, but I'm trying to give you the illustration of how important it is to follow through regardless of failure when you are called by God to do a certain thing. And this is what happened with Nehemiah. He went away and he came back and everything that he built seemed to have fallen apart. Just when he got and was just talking about how great of a work God was doing, he went and turned around and everything fell apart. Now there's where the test begins. What will you do? Well, Nehemiah persevered in faith. He confronted those who stood against him. If you look in verse 4, it says, Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, you remember Tobiah, right? Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, right? That evil trinity. They all came against uh, Nehemiah. We saw them throughout from chapter 2, and they popped up here and there. Well, don't you remember, we talked about very in the beginning, when, when they came after Nehemiah, he goes, you have no inheritance in this at all, in this city or in this temple. You're, you're out of here, he told them. And the reason he did that was not only because of their motives were wrong for wanting to be involved, but because they were Moabites and Ammonites. And they were not allowed in the assembly. And the reason why, in Deuteronomy 23, it says they weren't allowed because they did not offer the Israelites bread and water when they exited Egypt. And they also hired Balaam to, to try to curse Israel. But God turned that around. Now, coincidentally, Balaam is mentioned in the Bible as somebody that was really evil. Even though in the story we don't really see it, we see him like, hey, I'm doing what God's telling me to do. But what we do is we, what we read in, in Numbers <clears throat> chapter 31, verse 16, that he didn't curse Israel like Balak wanted him to, but he went to Balak and told them how to stumble Israel. He goes, I'll tell you what these people really like. They'll fall into adultery if you give them a statue, okay? <laughs> they'll take foreign women and they'll commit adultery and fornication. That's how you stumble them. And that's what they did and caused Israel to fall into those sins. And it's, it's, it's important that you see that this is mentioned in the first section of chapter 13 because this is, in fact, what Eliashib, was, Eliashib the priest was doing. He was causing the temple to be defiled by allowing an Ammonite, not to mention Nehemiah's archenemy, Tobiah, to live in one of the chambers, one of the fancy chambers. See, what would happen is, 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 is important people, it was only the priests and the Levites, but those people that would travel in to service the, the, the Lord in the temple, they would have chambers set aside for them to live. And these, this, this temple wasn't elaborate, so what Eliashib did is he took out the room to store all the tithes, he cleared that out, and let Tobiah move in there. So this was a really great sin. And Nehemiah, he stood, confronted this priest, and he took action. He didn't go, man, this is just a, I can't believe this is happening. You know what, you want this temple to be defiled? Go ahead, I'm done. Nope. He said, I was called to finish this job and I'm going to do it. So what did he do? 
He did like Jesus did. He went in and he cleared out the temple because of its, it was with the, for the purposes that they were doing it were wrong. Get Tobiah out of here. Get his stuff out of here. He threw them all out and he moved all the tithes and all the offerings back in for the priests. So he took that step of faith and he confronted those who stood against him. And then when you go down to verse 10, he basically rebuilt that which the people torn down as it relates to the provisions for the priests. And so if you'll see in different sections of chapter 13 that this is, is very obvious that these are excerpts from his, from his memoir because each section starts with, I also discovered, and in these days I saw, and in those days I saw. So this is little things that he saw. So picture Nehemiah being a little bit older, writing this memoir and telling about what happened, and then Ezra putting this all together for the history of the Jewish people while he still had his hands on it. And he's piecing this together so to tell a complete story. It's not necessarily a complete narrative like we would want. So he says in verse 10, I discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service, they had gone away, each to his field. So he reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Remember in chapter 10, how they just, or chapter, uh, um, what was it, chapter 11? No, chapter 10, the house of God, the house of God, the house of God, the house of God, all about the house of God. When they're going on and on, how they're going to keep the house of God. As soon as Nehemiah leaves, they neglect the house of God. So much so that the Levites were like, we can't live here if you don't feed us. <laughs> so they moved out. They went back to their villages to where they could provide for themselves. They could only take so much. And guess what happens when the Levites aren't there? One of two things. Either improper, defiled worship or no worship at all, which is probably better. So there was no worship going on. Nehemiah built all this up. And they tore it all down. So what did he do? He got everybody back. He put the singers back in. He put the Levites back in. And he delegated to the people. So that way they could oversee what was happening. He put some of his people in there that he knew were reliable. And this also requires a step of faith. There's no man of God or woman of God that's going to handle things on their own. You need other people. You cannot depend on yourself to oversee everything of the vision and the things that God has given you. As a matter of fact, you bless other people by entrusting them with things. Not by entrusting them with things and then micromanaging them. But that requires faith. Why? Because we have to trust God that he has raised these people up and that he is going to oversee it. We have to have them be, make them accountable we have to expect and inspect. We have to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But the entrusting is something that allows them to scale out and allows Nehemiah to be in more places. And this required faith. And he did that. Then again, we say, he says in verse 14, remember me for this, O God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. We'll talk a little bit more about these sayings because they're after each one about him asking God to remember him. And so he also did things like 
He rebuked the Sabbath breakers. They were selling food on the Sabbath. There were people from Tyre that were camping out on the Sabbath just outside the walls to tempt the people of Israel. He pulled them out. He said, get out of here. And he put his servants and guards out there to make sure they didn't do that. And then he really got angry about the intermarrying that was uh, the, the lack of purity of the seed of Jerusalem. They went back and started intermarrying the daughters and sons of Ashdod, Moab, and the Ammonites. How about that? So they're taking the people of God that aren't allowed ever in the assembly and they're intermarrying them. You see, is that not a deceptive act of Satan? He's making sure that the house of God will be polluted forever by, by enticing them with lust to pollute that seed. And Nehemiah, he got physical. Some people say that this is a little bit harsh. Verse 25, I contended with them and I cursed them and I struck some of them and pulled out the hair and made them swear by God. Wow, that's, that hurts. But you see, Nehemiah is not just the average Christian going around beating people up for not following the things of God. Who's Nehemiah? He's the civil leader. He has the authority of the sword. He could throw these people in jail. He could take these people and punish them. He could do whatever he needs to do in this so-called theocracy over Israel that he was in charge of. So he, he, he faced all this difficulty. He stepped out in faith. None of this was easy. None of this was a definite win. But he trusted God in these actions because he had faith in the calling that God had given him. And so restoration and rebuilding may have been his overarching purpose. Go, Nehemiah, rebuild the walls. But the vehicle that God used to accomplish that was persevering faith and trusting God's plan without giving up. Isn't that even part of our own salvation? What does God promise that we will persevere till the end? He promises us that. That implies work, doesn't it? That implies getting through difficult times. This isn't earning wages to get to earning, you know, doing good things morally and, and earning your way. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. This is talking about salvation. It's by what? Faith. But it's by persevering faith. And so that's what he showed. Now, how can we model this? How can we leave this study of Nehemiah and say, you know what, I want to take this and I want to apply this to my walk with God? Well, first of all, what we have to do is step out in faith. That means you have to get uncomfortable. You have to be willing to get uncomfortable to do things for God. Willing to get uncomfortable. What does that mean? That means stepping into the unknown. That's what Nehemiah did. He stepped into the unknown. He had no idea what he was doing when he left that cushy job as cupbearer to the king. He went from drinking out of gold chalices to probably drinking out of old wineskins. He went from sleeping on a nice cushy bed with quilts and every other uh, amenity you could think of 
to riding on a donkey and probably laying on the ground in some sort of man-made tent. He stepped out. He asked the king if he could go rebuild the city that once used to rule the world. He was opposed, and he confronted those who opposed him, the three people that I mentioned before, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And then he did what we would think was impossible. He rebuilt the walls in 52 days with tools in one hand and a sword in the other. Imagine going to work Monday and your, and your boss saying, there's your laptop and here's a Colt 45. We may be under attack today during this job. That's what happened. He was taking these steps. He... He inspired people through this. He abolished the usury. He took no money for himself. He set the example. As a result, what happened? Because he took the step of faith. Many people heard the law of God that had never heard it before. Many people were taught the law. Many people reinstituted the holy festivals. They were inspired to seek God. They even made a covenant. They populated the city. They, they put the temple back in place with all of its rituals, sacrifices, servants. They dedicated the wall. They made a procession. They were worshiping with servants and hymns and timbrels and lyres, all because of one little step of faith that one insignificant man made into the unknown. Now, what we have to do is, like Nehemiah, we have to give up the known for the unknown. You have to give up the known for the unknown. What do you know about where you are? Well, I know I have the security of a home. Inside my home, I have my big angry dog. I have my fence around my backyard. I have my vehicle. I can get where I want. I have my relationships, I have my goals, I have my ideas, I have my lifestyle, etc., etc. What would be stepping into the unknown? It would be putting all that secondary to the calling of God. There's nothing short of that, folks. I want to push, make it real cushy and say, yeah, you just have to be willing and all this other stuff. And yes, you do, that comes, but we're beyond that. We're at the point now where we must take a step into the unknown to move things forward. Will I fail or succeed is the things that will come to mind. This is unknown about stepping out for God, your success. And that's why you got to get rid of that mentality. Get rid of the mentality of succeeding when you go out for God, when you step out for God. Because you're succeeding by stepping out for God. And you may end up having to take a hit mentally, physically, financially, even spiritually. God often takes those people that he uses and, and dries them out, spirit, just wrings their neck spiritually and twists them up, dries them out and reestablishes them. Are you ready to do that? That's what he's asking us to do. Is money stopping you from taking a step out for God or the lack of or the potential of losing money? You have to get rid of that. Jesus says that if you seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, 
Everything that you need will be added unto you. You will be given what you need. Do you have the experience, if I look at it on paper, that you could step out for God in the way that you're thinking? I don't know. doesn't matter if God's calling you. He'll put the people around you. He'll put the people around you. When he called me to make a film, I never had, knew how to make a film. And yes, it was a real film. When I tell people I made a film, like, oh, that's nice, good, yeah. What did you have a little phone? Did you? No, we used it. It was a, it was a film. It was a movie. It went in the theaters. How did you learn how to do that? Well, I didn't. I just learned. I, I God led me to read 150 books and then to go out and recruit the best people around me. I had no idea what I was doing. Doesn't matter about your experience. God will provide if He has called you to do it. Now I have no interest in making film. Back then, that's what I needed to do and I had to do, but that's how God works. 12 years ago, I was making a film and I was in seminary. I didn't know 12 years from now I'd be doing this, but God will provide you the people that you need. He will give you the experience that you need either through you or through others. He'll provide you for the money. Who's going to be by my side? Maybe no one. Will I be miserable? Probably in the beginning. But since when is happiness the goal? See, are we really fully, truly ready to not look back and put our hand to the plow? You see, in order to step out of faith, we have to insist on following the call regardless of the consequences and regardless of the circumstances. Like Nehemiah did, he risked losing everything. Just go back to chapter one. How much more do we have to step out on that blind journey for the kingdom of God, the one that we are building for, the one that Jesus established, that we have a book that tells us about, and we have the Holy Spirit that's in us. I love the story of Ruth and Naomi after Naomi's husband Elimelech died <clears throat> along with her two sons. The two sons had wives, Orpah and Ruth. And they both loved, loved Naomi. They cried with her. They wept with her. And Naomi said, look, I have no sons. I have nobody for you guys. Just go back to your own lands. They were Moabites. How about that? And you know what? Orpah said, yeah, that's a, not a bad idea. I'm going to take off. But Ruth clung. I love that. She clung to her mother-in-law. It's the same sort of idea as when Jesus says, believe in me. It's a cleaving. It's a clinging on to. It's not just an intellectual idea. It's a clinging Ruth clung to her mother-in-law, knowing she would be despised for the rest of her life for being a barren woman and not having a husband. She would basically be a slave. She would basically be looked at from the people of Israel, not only as a slave, but as a Moabite woman and a Moabite slave. She gave up her entire life to take this little tiny step of faith for her mother-in-law, Naomi. She said in uh, verses 1, 14 to 16, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Orpah. 
Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And see, that's what God is asking us to do. I am calling you to go to do something to step out of your comfort zone. Okay, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I'm going to go. Wherever you want me to lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people will be my people. You are going to be my God. I am going to follow you wherever I go. That little tiny step of faith is why we're talking about Ruth today. She, like Nehemiah, had a book named after them. More than that, she ended up having a son with Boaz named Obed, who happened to be the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Will you be an Orpah? You can live that life. You can go back to the familiar or a Ruth. You want your faith to produce a David or one of Orpah's descendants? Can anyone name one of them? Who? (laughs) Goliath was before. No, he was after. Would you want a Goliath or a David? The Engholms are always tripping me up. And you would think it would be Rebecca. (laughs) Now, in order to take the step of faith like Nehemiah, we have to emulate Christ's faithfulness in his mission. Because there's this, do you see the parallel here with Nehemiah and Christ? Nehemiah emulated Christ. He was a type of kingdom builder as Christ was. He set out on a journey to rebuild the tore down creation from sin. He fully relied on the Father. He confronted and defeated the evil before him. He reinstated the people of God. Jesus reestablished the priesthood. And the true Sabbath he fulfilled in himself. He didn't forsake the house of God. He became it and fulfilled it. Nehemiah was led by God. We have Christ in us. We have the fullness of God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Do you not realize this about yourselves? Jesus Christ is in you? Nehemiah didn't have that. We do. We have the Holy Spirit in us to guide us, empower us, and lead us and point us in the direction, guide us in the direction. But we have to take a step of faith. What's stopping you from stepping out into faith? Into that step of faith, I should say. What's stopping you from doing it? Do you fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel is Jesus Christ giving up his life. God dying, taking his life so that we can live. But we don't live for him. We live, I'm sorry, but we don't live for ourselves. We live for him, the reason we were put on this earth. That's what true humanity is all about. True human beingism is living for God. Fully, because that's what we were made to do. We were made in the image of God. We're made for only one purpose. Everything else is a result of the contamination of the human race and us trying to get back to that thing of living as a human being. 
And the gospel allows us to do that because Jesus gave his life for you. So how much more should we give our life to him beyond just the, the ticket to the better afterlife? That's nothing compared to what he desires for us in that we take a step out and get involved. And I'm speaking beyond your everyday stuff. I'm talking about really stepping out in ministry, if you want to call it that. And I know everybody starts to think about ministry, you know, formal ministry, not even that. I was thinking about it. What could we do here as a church? What do we need? What could the people of God in this church step out and do? Well, we could teach the word of God. Maybe you don't know how to teach the word of God and you want to teach the word of God. Come and see me or one of the elders or someone and say, hey, I want to teach the word of God or I want to have a Bible study at my house. I want to do more. Sharing your faith. I want to share my faith. I want to get out and do more. I want to come and serve at the church. I know we've been talking a lot about that. We want to be, we want to serve at the church, but we don't want to serve just for the sake of serving. We want to come and serve as Christ living in and through us, ministering to others. And that's really encompasses everything. And we talked about it in Sunday school today as Chris was telling us about what does the ch local church and what does the church function like? And it functions like this, but it's not just to come here and hear me preach. It's all I'm doing is pointing you to Christ, our chief shepherd. But now we collectively have to be the church. And when we look at what God has given us here, are we using it to the best of our ability? When he calls us to an account as a church on that day, and he says, look at the talents I gave Faith Evangelical Church. What did you do with it? Are we going to say, well, we took it and buried it in our 12 acres? Or are we going to say we, we multiplied it tenfold or a hundredfold? I don't think we're multiplying it tenfold or a hundredfold. I don't think we're burying it, but I don't think we're multiplying it. And I don't think it's because we're just all sitting around going, ah, I don't want to serve God. I just think that we have to start stepping out in faith. There's a lot of things that we could do. You know, I was thinking one area, imagine one area out here that just had, imagine if our church was on a bus stop and every Sunday morning after church, we had a hundred people out there sitting, waiting for the bus. And we just drove by them and waved to them. Hey, how you doing? Praise the Lord. And somebody says, you know what, Pat? I think we should put Jesus saves on the billboard outside. I would say, yeah, that's a great idea. No, I would say, you know what? We need to start ministering to those people. We need to go out there and preach to those people every Sunday. We need to go out there and, and, and offer them some donuts and gospel tracts and invite them in for the sermon while they're waiting, right? We would do that. I know you would do that. I know who you are as a church. But there's a world out there that I believe we're missing. And it's, I believe it's the, it's the digital world. And not that I want to become this promoter of, you know, let's send sermons and let me do videos and all that. But, and I know Gabriella does a great job with, with, with what she can do with her time. But I just thought about it. I said, imagine if we had somebody that had a vision for the social media that they wanted to reach. And you can do this. Everybody in Freehold, on Facebook, on Instagram, on whatever other gram there is out there. And we had somebody to do that. Imagine the reach that we could do just by getting them the word of God or just sending them an invite to our church. Those are some of the, that's one of the things I'm thinking about. That's a big step of faith. 
And you go, well, I don't understand the internet. Learn it. And it's, I can go on and on and on. You have a church behind you. You have a pastor and elders and leaders behind you. You have the resources. And you have Jesus telling you to go. Now you have to take the step of faith. And I believe that's what we saw in Nehemiah. I hope that you can review this book. And like I said, go through the book of Malachi if you'd like to have some extra stuff and read it, listen to it. I listened to the whole book the other day during one of my, my son's football practices or on the way to, to the football practice. I think it took me like 25 minutes on, on Audible to listen to the whole book. Read it a couple more times with the mindset of how can I be like this guy? Lord, how can I take a step of faith? What can you have me do to get out of my comfort zone to serve you and to impact the kingdom like he did? And never, yeah, amen. And Nehemiah never thought God did answer his prayer because what is his prayer? God, remember me, remember me. I think God remembered him. Gave him a book that's going to last into eternity. So what happens to Israel next? Well, in about 100 years, they're conquered by Alexander the Great. He conquers the world. Then we have the Maccabean Empire. Then we have the uh, Hasmonean Empire. And then we have Jerusalem being captured by Rome. And then we have Jesus. So there's your, your, your history of Israel quickly. So speaking of Jesus, we are going to start a new series next week in Hebrews. So we're going to take Hebrews verse by verse. We're going to learn about Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus over everything that we just talked about in the law, the Levitical priesthood, and even Melchizedek. So now we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper. We are going to um, examine ourselves before we do this. We know that the Lord's Supper is not something that actually happens to us physically, necessarily, other than the physical eating and drinking. It's not a, it's not, it doesn't turn into Jesus. Um, that's not what we believe as the Bible teaches. What we believe is that this is a sign and a symbol. It's a sign and better yet, a seal. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the intimacy that we have in Christ. It's a sign that points backward to what he did. It points forward to what he's going to do and what he's doing. And most importantly, it points inward to the heart of the gospel in us. That Christ, that we are appropriating Christ. We are receiving the fact, the, the, the word of God that he died for our sins when we eat that bread. It represents his body that we are becoming one with. And when we drink the juice, it's symbolic of the wine, which he says was his blood for the remission of sins. So this is a grace, my friends. This is a grace that God gives us, a spiritual grace of refreshment. So cleanse your heart. Take a second and do business with God. And then let's partake together of the, this, this sign of free grace that God has granted us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for, life for the sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Father, please, as we come before your table, Lord, cleanse our hearts, forgive our sins. Lord, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah. 
Lord, may this act of partaking in your supper together unify us to move forward, to take a step of faith individually and as a church. Lord, we pray for this area. Let us impact the freehold and beyond. Lord, let us not just sit here and, and, and eat and feed ourselves, but let's open our eyes and look as you see this world and the world around us and move us, God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.